Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit AbyssBattery.com. Teaching Ron how to shoot on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Well, after some 58 years of shooting, I'm finally learning how to do it right, according to my fans or detractors. (laughs) Hey, folks, welcome and uh, stay tuned because a lot of you are teaching me how to shoot better and you probably are right. (laughs) We're going to find out. Here's what happened. We did a series of uh, videos on the 308 Winchester during 308 Winchester week in which I shot for groups three different Winchester or three different rifles chambered for the 308 Winchester on each show and then we picked the best from each went to the finals and had to shoot off and picked one out of nine rifles that I liked the best and then another one that my friend and cooperator Chase liked the best but while I was shooting all of those on the bench a lot of people offered some advice on how I could do it better and I want to read some of those to you but first we're going to hear from one of our Patreons because we always address our patrons first and this is Luke who says, hey, Ron, I enjoy your content. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Luke. My question is, what is the process you do with your body when shooting? In particular, what are you doing with your cheek weld and your shoulder? Are you applying full weight of your head on the stock? Does the reticle move in any direction while you're applying cheek pressure? And do you pull the rifle back into your shoulder or are you bringing your shoulder into the rifle And how much does all of this process change when you're shooting in different situations? Shooting off a bench as opposed to shooting off of offhand or sitting or kneeling. Thanks for your time and answer. So I wrote back, Luke, my heartfelt thanks for your support. As for your questions, I do tend to hunch my shoulder into the butt on the bench. I know this creates a certain degree of variable pressure and I wonder if I shouldn't modify this. This changes when I shoot offhand, as you suggested, and I suspect when I shoot off of sticks or off of a pack in the field, just not positive. I generally make my hunting shots, except when and if I'm standing with a single support under the forend. Then I tend to sway left to right to an uncomfortable degree. 
I usually control myself enough to manage this, and I have made some 300 to 400 yard shots this way, but it is my least favorite. I do not consciously apply full head weight to the stock when bench shooting. I mainly concentrate on minimizing contact and movement of the rifle while I maintain a steady sight picture and alignment on the target. But feel free to offer any better or best shooting advice. Well, we got a whole bunch of that better advice coming up from a lot of other folks here. So we're going to get to it. Someone named Anthony said, hey, great stuff. No mention of twists on the rifles. Okay, so he wants to know if rifle A was a 1 in 10 twist, it shot better than maybe the rifle with a 1 in 12 twist. I did not measure the twist rates on those rifles. Might try that next time we do one of these, Anthony. Norman, it's been said, uh, yet I'd like to see you reshoot. Hmm. Oh, if it hasn't been said yet, I'd like to see you reshoot the 168 grain bullets in that Bergara rifle. We had a Bergara B14 and uh, it didn't shoot as well as I thought it should. And this guy agrees, so he wants me to redo it. And here's why. Make sure it is off the swivel stud. Otherwise, it would be hard to beat the Savage that shot everything well. Yeah, a uh, couple of times I wondered if maybe I wasn't dragging that stud on the front. The four-end stud sticking down, if you have that resting on your bags, there's a chance that you're going to change your impacts. It's going to, it's not consistent. Ideally, you want that well in front so that the rifle can slide over the bag back at you. And it's definitely possible since I was switching rifles so often that I didn't quite get it far enough forward. Now, if it was forward but slid back in during recoil, I don't think that's going to change the impact point at all because by the time that sling stud slides back and strikes anything, the bullet is free of the barrel. You got to think how quickly that bullet goes. For every action, there's an opposite and instant reaction, but it takes a while for that instant reaction, the force of that bullet leaving the barrel, driving that big heavy rifle back. So the bullet's easily gone before the rifle slides back enough to hit the stud. But if the stud were on the bag to start with, yes, that could change things. And that may have happened. I don't know. All right. Now, here's someone who watched me shooting the AR-10, which I don't do very often, and said, Hey, Ron, please don't leave the charging handle on that AR-10 out ever! Exclamation points. I know you really don't know the AR platform that well, but you never leave the charging handle out. It's an absolute perfect way to break it and ruin your day shooting. <laughs> All right, I appreciate that. This was from Barb. Appreciate that, Barb. Um, yeah, you pull that handle back, the charging handle. It's just the way to, to pull the bolt back to operate the, the gun. But you can once you've pulled the bolt back, you can slide that charging handle back forward. It is fairly fragile, I suppose, with those two bars on either side of it. So probably not bad advice. And you're right. I don't shoot the ARs all that often. All right. From PJ. Sorry, three-shot groups do nothing more than sell a rifle. At least give us five-shot groups to show consistency on how well that rifle shoots. This is merely an add-on, which is why all the gun magazines show three-shot groups and no longer show five-shot groups. You've got kind of a point there, PJ, but I would argue that even five-shot groups are really not a positive indicator of how accurate that rifle is or isn't. This has been going on for quite some time. Back in the day, and we're talking the early to mid-20th century, it was considered to be... Uh, 
measured accurately if you shot a 10-shot group, 10 shots. And then they got to five, and nowadays we're all doing three. And you're right. One of the reasons they like three-shot groups is because the manufacturers can guarantee MOA accuracy from their rifle, which most of us think is a great deal. Like, wow, all right. But they say this is from a three-shot group with a really good quality shooter, using high quality ammunition under controlled conditions. Okay, that's fair enough. I mean, you can't blame the uh, a rifle if the shooter's no good uh, and if the ammunition is no good. So they do have some stipulations. But the other thing is, it's only a three-shot group. And it's, it's just easier to shoot a three-shot group sub MOA than a five, and that's easier than 10, and that's easier than a 20, <laughs> and you can go as far as you want. At some point, you're going to get a flyer and mess yourself up. No, I agree, but what we were trying to do is just show the potential for these rifles to shoot well. This wasn't a, a, a long, exhaustive test on which is the most accurate rifle there. We were just getting a feel for them so we could talk about the barrel length and the performance and the balance and how it felt and a lot of things that we all need to consider when choosing a rifle. But uh, good point and thanks for bringing it up. Dean uh, has a question. He says, Ron, are you shooting these rifles from a clean bore? Or did you f fire a fouling round first? Another good question because a lot of barrels will shoot the uh, clean barrel shot to considerably different position than the subsequent shots. Most of us will shoot one to three fouling shots in our rifles before we consider it going to be consistent for the shots thereafter. And the answer, Dean, was that there were several fouling shots down the barrels because we had zeroed the rifles the previous day. And, yeah, you know, some of them we maybe shot three times to get a zero, some of them just once, uh, but they were all at least fouled with one shot, if not more. And then the question comes up, well, that's really not fair because Rifle A might have required three fouling shots to become consistent, whereas the next rifle might have only needed one. And once again, you could go on and on with this stuff and probably wear yourself and your rifle out before you ever came to a solid conclusion. <laughs> Little Daddy says the camera made it look like uh, he, meaning Chase, I assume, walked forward from the bench. Who has a spotty scope downrange of the shooting bench? He's still not comfortable with having a closed rifle behind me. So what, what he was seeing was Chase going around after I had shot and opened my rifle, going around me. And it looked like he was going to the front in front of the muzzle. He wasn't. He was off to the side quite a ways. You couldn't see it. So the angle of the camera and everything made it look like he was going around to the front. But he was safely out of the way of the muzzle downrange and all the rest of that stuff. And we didn't have the spotting scope back behind me because it would have been cluttering up the image and making it a little more difficult to see what was going on, I think is what we decided. But appreciate your concern for safety. That's always worth noting, everyone. Roger, what have you got to say here? Um, hey, this guy's giving me a pat on the back. All right, Roger. <laughs> good series on the videos. It would have been a good addition to the information if you had also measured muzzle velocities. With the MVs, viewers would be able to put the data into a ballistics calculator. Otherwise, good videos and good work. Have a great day. All right, Roger. Appreciate that. And yes, that is a great idea. And of course, anyone sizing up a rifle for his own use and whatnot needs to know the velocities to build a, an accurate trajectory table. We weren't, of course, trying to do that with these, so we, we consider it. And then the extra work of having to go back and forth and read uh, the chronograph and everything, we just thought really it wasn't all that essential to this sort of 
wrapping it up with what this rifle can do. It's all showing potential. But if I were doing a serious review of one or two rifles to find the better one or the best one and all the rest, I would want to know those velocity. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. All right. Good point there. Z98. Ron, I think you should retest these rifles. Oh, no. <laughs> More work. Retest these rifles with the same ammo, but only the threaded models and with a suppressor. Watching you shoot, I think you're pulling some shots. The amount your body moves, hand coming off the rifle entirely, tame that recoil down by 40%, and I bet those groups tighten right up. For 90% of hunters, if the recoil is such that you cannot spot your shot as it goes down range, it's too much recoil to shoot all that accurately. Well, I don't know. You may be onto something here, Z. I will admit I don't have the world's finest bench technique. I was never trained as a bench rest shooter. And I... I can generally tell if I'm pulling a shot and I can just kind of see a little bit of a movement of the reticle right when the shot breaks. And I keep my eyes open when I shoot too. So I try to see that. Um, and I suspect if I were seeing a little more squared up to the rifle like this, rather than twisting a little bit to the side, I wouldn't come quite back as far, but I don't know that that is affecting my ability to shoot a tight group because I've been doing this for years and years and I've shot many half inch groups and even a few quarter inch groups with sporting rifles and I'm using the same techniques. And a lot of people were questioning my hand coming off and saying I had sloppy trigger control and I was jerking the trigger and slapping it and all sorts of things. It does look like that in some of these videos. What I'm doing with this technique is what bench rest shooters have told me from time to time, which is don't disturb the rifle with a lot of tension and pressure in your hands. That's why you don't put your four hand on the fore end of the rifle to add more wiggle potentially you let it rest on the bags and then you control the elevation of the rifle to fine-tune your shot by squeezing the rabbit ears on the bag at the butt 
in concentrate on coming straight back. And then if I keep my grip very light, I can squeeze that trigger. And of course, the rifle is going to jump out of my finger in my hand, but I haven't disturbed it. Now, maybe that's the wrong technique to use on a lighter weight hunting rifle. But again, using that technique, I've shot a lot of really tight groups. So worth considering. And we're going to do a video on changing that up. I'm going to shoot the same rifle with different techniques and we'll see if there is a consistency in a certain way of holding the rifle and shooting it on the bench and we'll report that stuff. So maybe we can find a, a good answer for this one, but thanks for bringing it up. Joe or Jao or Jao, or I'm not sure how you pronounce this name. I think it's a Brazilian name, J-O-A-O. Spanish or Brazilian or Portuguese, I would think. Don't take me wrong, Ron, but I think you need to rework your shooting stance on the bench. See, what did I tell you? Everybody's kind of helped me out here. I appreciate this stuff, guys. During all the tests, most of the rifles knocked you out of posture. Maybe you're slightly canted on the bench and not absorbing the recoil with the shoulder. Best regards. Very nice video. See, he's trying to help me out here, and I appreciate that kind of stuff. And you may be right. Back to my previous answer, I'm going to test all this stuff out and find out exactly what happens. Now, speaking of our 308 Winchester and how to shoot them, here's something from Mr. Mr. Tackleberry. I was always a little down on the 308, welcome to my life, but I was convinced to give it a try. So I picked up a Mossberg MVP patrol rifle with a 16.2-inch barrel and a Silencer Co. 45 hybrid for it, and I started loading. I have now got a 110 grain Varmageddon load for varmints, a 110 grain CX load for defense, a 168 grain ABLR for deer and big game, and a 175 grain Hornady Sub X. Works great and will work on everything in North America and beyond. It is about my most versatile rifle now. Well, Mr. Tackleberry, thanks for sharing that information. Apparently, you have done a lot of work with your rifle, uh, tuning it up and building some loads that work for you. And this is an example of someone getting that versatility out of his cartridge and rifle. Everything from a 110 grain bullet to a 175 grain subsonic bullet. Wow. <laughs> Having a good time. All right. Oh, here's something about a 300 Savage. This is from Steve. Ron, everything that I've read and have learned about the 300 Savage says that it was developed in 1920, not 25. I think I said in, in the video review I did on the uh, 308 that it was not directly built from the 300 Savage, and the 300 Savage came out in 1925. Steve says it was 1920, and that very well may be. I get, I get so many numbers in my head that I tend to lose some of them through the cracks. <laughs> so I could easily be off for a few years. Sometimes I'm even off by a century. I'll say 1925 when I meant 1825. <laughs> so you got to stay on your toes and catch me, guys. I'm dependent on you to help me out. Oh, boy. Oh, oh he goes on to say that he really likes that 300 Savage, but he wonders why we don't really report on it all that often. He says it, it has always played catch-up to the 308 and the 30 6 How come? Well, it's because it's kind of obsolete. It, I don't know that anyone chambers for the 300 Savage anymore. The 308 it, Winchester is what pounded the nails into its coffin. You've got the same length action. Um, you can shoot 
with higher pressures in the 308, a little bit longer case. So you got a little more powder capacity so you can drive your bullets just a little faster, maybe 100 feet per second. So that's why. I mean, just why bother with the 300 Savage when you got that 308 with all the military ammo that's available, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, the 300 Savage is still a viable cartridge and it's a lot of fun if you've got an old rifle chambered for it, especially if you hand load with some of today's modern bullets and all. You essentially got yourself a 308 Winchester right there. Now, here's one from uh, John about our 308 series. He says, Ron, I love this, these rifle comparisons. Watching three different rifles shoot three different weight bullets, it's really informative. I would agree with Ron on the Savage. Not often that you get a factory rifle that will shoot three different weights all that well out of the box. I'm looking forward to the rest of the series. Well, I hope you enjoyed the rest of the series by now, John, and everyone else listening. If you want to see those, go to Ron Spomer Outdoors, my regular pod or my regular YouTube channel. In the 308 Winchester week, we have about five or six videos all on the 308. One's explaining the history of it and the ballistics and everything. And then we go to shooting three rifles against one another, three more and three more, and then a roundup at the end, pitting the winners of those three to get the overall winner, and then a roundup of all the rifles with their features and what we like and don't like about them. So you can uh, learn a few things about nine different kinds of rifles all chambered for the 308 Winchester. All right. I think that's enough of the corrections for a while here. <laughs> We're going to get to something else. One of them is primers, small primers, magnum primers. Randy asks, Magnum, oh no, Randy asks, off and on, I see in one reloading book, a rifle, small primer, and another book or source with the same load will use a small rifle Magnum primer. How does that affect pressure? I see this in small rifle and pistol primers, like my 6.5 Grendel, and I loaded up some with a small rifle primer from Hornady or Hodgson Load Info and others, and then I go to the Alexander Arms PDF, and they use this small rifle Magnum primer. It's very confusing. <laughs> I agree. I want the most from my rifle, mainly inaccuracy, and I want all the powder to burn. Do you have any recommendations that might help? Randy, Magnum primers are hotter than standard, and they're useful when working with slow burning powders or when expecting to shoot in extremely cold conditions. Yes, they raise pressures usually, but every brand of primer is slightly different from the others. And that's another reason why it's wise to start with your starting loads and then work your way up without changing the components. I have never felt a need to use Magnum small primer, but there are some small primer 308 Winchester family brass, and that might explain why you'd need a small Magnum. You got a pretty good dose of powder in that 308 case. And if you go to the small primer pocket instead of a large primer pocket, you might have a slow burning powder to push a 200 grain target bullet. And you need to make sure that thing is going to ignite. So you'll go with the Magnum primer in that situation. But as far as your pressures, Randy, what you want to look for is the starting data in that manual and stick with all those same components. Don't worry about whether they use one primer or another. Just use that primer, that powder, that level of powder in that bullet. Follow those recipes and then watch for pressure signs and work your way up. Once you arrive at your pet load that does everything you want it to do, don't switch any of those components out. The real serious shooters will even redo their loads if they get a different lot of the same powder. So let's say you're shooting 4831 shortcut powder. 
and it's lot number 67 or whatever the manufacturer had made. When they make their next big batch of that powder, something subtle might change in its composition that will alter its burning rate just enough that it will change your pressure. So you need to start afresh getting your loading data. This is uh, why a lot of real serious hand loaders also buy their powder in bulk instead of one pound this week and one pound next December and then another pound two years from now, they get eight pounds and they keep using that because it's consistent. All right, here is uh, something on ring height for your scope from Jason. Hey, I hope you're doing well. A quick question on scope ring height. This might be a dumb question, so bear with me. Jason, there are never dumb questions, just dumb answers. <laughs> and I try not to give dumb answers, but sometimes... Ah, I have been shooting a lot of Tikas and using the Tally Low one-piece rings. I use those a lot, too. I like those, Jason. Jason continues, I find this setup to be very accurate, but almost too low, as it seems a little uncomfortable at times. Maybe I have an overly big head. <laughs> have you ever heard of other shooters having certain setups that are too low on the gun? I'm thinking about getting medium rings, but I wanted to check with you first to see if I'm off base on this. Should I always rig up as close to the barrel as possible? I wrote back, Jason, I have a rifle like that. The comb is slightly too high or the scope is too low. Well, the idea with all of this is to match the two so that your eye naturally falls behind the center of the scope. The differences in face forms and the comb height and the scope rings, they all play a role. One does not need to keep the slope, the scope as low to the bore as possible, but I find that it makes the rifle more balanced. So play around with the ring heights or the comb height because I don't think you want to have plastic surgery to mess up your face size. <laughs> Good luck. That's being a little bit funny there, Jason, but I think you get the drift. Yeah, I mean, there are certain benefits to having your scope closer to the bore, but it's not really critical. You can have it inch and a half high, inch and three quarter high, two inches high. That will change your trajectory a little bit because you're starting off with your sight so much higher than your bore line. But you can adjust all that stuff with your uh, trajectory curves based on, on where your bullets zeroed at your sight in distance and all the rest of it. So not a big deal. But boy, you don't want your scope so high that you have to lift off the comb to find it. Ideally, you want to shoulder that rifle comfortably like you would a shotgun and have that sight picture right there. Kind of hard to do. Um, a lot of places will sell you a uh, adjustable strap-on device that you put over the comb and you can put various dimensions or thicknesses of pads underneath and that comb then will rise up and down based on how many of those pads and how thick they are. So you can tweak it until you get a nice, quick, comfortable feel right there where you're looking right down the scope without having to stretch up or scrunch down. And if your comb is too high, you can't even scrunch down far enough to see through the scope. So that's a big problem. Good one. Uh Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com.
Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. All right, what else do we have here? All right, well, let's see what the team has found for me. Hmm, oh boy, we've got people here from Kansas and Alaska and North Carolina. Oh, God, another one from Australia. I always love those. I got to get back to Australia one of these years. Let's go to Alaska first. Ray says, Mr. Spomer, my family and I recently moved to the Great White North, and we will be hunting moose and caribou this fall for the first time. Oh, great, Ray. You're going to have a blast. I just love hunting Alaska for just about anything, but moose especially. Caribou is fun, too. Ah, my question is in regards to my son, 13, and the best all-round cartridge for these animals and for him. Good, good thinking. I've watched your previous content on this subject, but I'm still trying to juggle several different options. What is your recommendation for him based off the following? He's a 150-pound shooter, ammunition availability, ammo costs, recoil, effectiveness, Many regards, Ray. Oh, you're putting me on the spot here, Ray. That's a lot to consider, but really it is what we all have to consider when we're choosing a firearm. Ammo availability, I, I never used to be concerned about that, but these days it's becoming an issue. Yet in general, the more popular the cartridge, the better your chances, I think, of finding ammo for it because the ammo companies load that first. They want to supply the people who have the greatest demand for that particular load. Whereas oddball cartridges like, well, let's say uh, even a 7mm 08 Remington, which should be a lot more popular than it is, it's a lot more difficult to find ammunition for it than the 308, which is why the 308 continues to outsell it and probably always will. Um, so consider popular rounds like 300 Win Mag, 30 out 6, 308. You can go into the sevens and do just fine, but a lot of people in Alaska are considering what if a bear charges me and they want something bigger. So I think it's a safe bet to go with the 300s or the 30s, which is the same thing. But you're going to be able to then shoot a pretty heavy stout bullet. Um, and your young shooter here can grow into it, obviously. So with the 308 or the 30 at 6, you can start with 150 grain loads and then work your way up if you think you need to or want to. You can also have him have the first round up the 150 grain load for his caribou. And then the next one behind it could be a 180 grain serious controlled expansion bullet or even a 200 grain in case there is a bear situation. You know, whether he shoots it with the first shot and then jacks in the next round and hits it with a harder one, or he has the time and the forethought to empty that first round and go to the bigger ones, he gets a little bit sloppy. Then, <laughs> When a bear charges, you generally don't think all that well, but it's not a bad option, better than nothing. Um, but you can also download a little bit. Oh, you're not a hand loader, though. So you, if you could find somebody to hand load for you. But the heavier bullet, that boy's going to find more recoil. That's just standard stuff. You go from a 150 to a 165, a little more recoil. 180, little more recoil. It just works its way up. I'm going to recommend the 308 for a lot of ammunition and a good choice in bullets. But if you've got a 3 out 6, 
That will give you about 100 feet per second more velocity, a little more oomph. Um, that would be my pick. But with the 308, you get a short action rifle too. I don't know that you want to go all that light. You want light for getting around conveniently and for whipping that rifle into action quickly. But then you're going to get a little bit more recoil. But then there are ways to offset recoil, whether you go with a muzzle brake or a suppressor or wear a pad or get a softer, spongier recoil pad on your rifle or add a little weight to the butt of your rifle. You could put a mercury-reducing mercury recoil tube in the back or tungsten these days. Those are really effective, and then you can always take it out if you want to lighten the rifle. So a lot of things to look for. But considering all those with a 150-pound shooter, I think I've covered them pretty well for you, Ray. So think about all that stuff, and uh, good luck with it, and good luck with your hunts. I hope you guys get your meat. All right, Walter down in Kansas. Ron, I was listening to episode 249. If Roy Weatherby really killed a Cape Buffalo with a 257 Weatherby. In it, you asked for additional info from the listening audience, so here I am. <laughs> I have an original 1951 Gun Digest, which, not including fantastic articles by Colonel Whalen, Jack O'Connor, and the like, it contains a series of argumentative essays between Elmer Keith and Roy Weatherby. Oh, that would be good. Because Keith, of course, was a slow, heavy bullet guy, or even fast and heavy, but he just liked big, heavy bullets, magnum man. And Roy was all about speed, velocity, and so-called hydrostatic killing power. In it, Roy recounts his recent trip to Africa, including killing a Cape Buffalo with his 257 Weatherby, or what he called his 25 Magnum. <laughs> he used an 87 green bullet launched at what he said was 4,000 feet per second, though that seems highly exaggerated to drop the old buffalo. Well, according to the article, Roy primarily used the 300 Weatherby with 150 grain silver tip to kill several soft-skinned game animals, including buffalo, leopard, and zebra. He also made some brain shots on a few elephants using the 300 with a 220 grain FMJ. Since the zeitgeist of the time would have dictated at least a 375 or a 9.3 millimeter cartridge, I'm sure the performance of the Weatherby Magnum seems revolutionary for the time. I would be happy to share more of this gun digest with you. I also have several other early gun digests that could be interesting as well. Thanks for the content. That is really great, Walter. Thanks for sending that stuff in. So the answer would seem to be absolutely he did take a buffalo with his 257 Weatherby. But not only that, he used an 87 grain bullet. Oh, my gosh. That had to have been a fairly frangible bullet he put behind the shoulder and exploded it into the lungs and heart. And I'll bet it worked darn well. But, boy, I'm glad. He didn't hit it in the shoulder because <laughs> I don't think that little bullet would have gotten inside. But that's the thing about shooting big game with a variety of bullets and velocities and everything else. They can all work and then they can all fail. And you have to sort of assess that to decide what are the chances of it failing versus succeeding <laughs> and make your decision based on that. I don't think I would make the 257 Weatherby with any bullet my primary Buffalo cartridge. All right, Minnesota, Alex. I have a sporterized Springfield 1903. That's a bold action rifle, the official U.S. military rifle, starting in 1903, but by 1906, they rechambered it to 30 out 6. Let's go back and start over here. I digress. Alex writes, I have a sporterized Springfield 1903 chambered in 6 millimeter out 6. That's a wildcat. It has a heavy bull barrel, 26 inches in length. 
I have watched probably just about all of your videos on YouTube and then some, and I haven't seen that cartridge pop up once, even in your latest Wildcat video. I would like to hear some info on that if it's something you're interested in. Thank you very much. Yeah, I could cover that someday, but of course, Alex, you understand that this is an obscure Wildcat cartridge that not a lot of people would know or maybe even have interest in. However, it is a pretty darn fast 243. Now, I do know that um, Jaybird, Kenny Jarrett, has a pet load that he developed, a Wildcat, but he calls it, well, it's a proprietary cartridge from him and his crew. They build beautiful bench rest, accurate field rifles and hunting rifles, and they have a, some of their own proprietary cartridges. One of them is a 243. I think he calls it either the Catbird or the Jaybird. And that is essentially what you're talking about here, the six millimeter on six. And he drives some bullets crazy fast with that thing. Obviously, it's overbore. You're going to be burning out your throat a lot faster with something like that. But we always say if you want to go fast, you have to pay the price, and this one will do it. So, yeah, the six millimeter on six is a good option for a hyper velocity 243. But Unless you go with a Jarrett rifle and buy his ammunition and or get the brass and load of your own, you're talking about a Wildcat. And they can be darned effective, but it's just a lot harder to get ammunition and rifles for them and all the rest of it. But yeah, you get into the Wildcat world and you can have a lot of fun with things you don't get on the uh, factory load and factory rifle front. So yeah, maybe someday we'll pick one up and play around with it. Okay, uh, North Carolina. Now, see, that's, I think, where Kenny Jarrett's operation is. Jarrett rifles, I think, are in North Carolina, either that or South Carolina. Um, I might have to go down there someday. I'll bet you if I went to the to the shop, they might take me to their shooting range and we could play around with that catbird, jaybird, whatever that 243-06 is. All right, folks. Well, Wes from North Carolina asks, um, reloading the 35 Winchester centerfire? What's the difference between the 35 WCF and the 35 Remington? Why is one still around and the other is impossible to find at a uh, ammunition at an affordable price? Thanks for everything, Mr. Spomer. Mm. You know, I know the 35 uh, Remington, I think it came out in 1906 or 1908. It was in their auto-loading rifle. Goes back to Bonnie and Clyde. I'm pretty sure that's the one that Frank Hamer was using when they took down Bonnie and Clyde. It was either that or the 30 caliber version of it. But the uh, the 35 Winchester centerfire, I don't know. Um, I know I've read about it before, but it's just I'm coming up with nothing here in the hard drive. Not coming up with the 35 Winchester centerfire. I think it was a similar idea for their auto-loading rifle. Somebody out there fixed me up on this one. If I'd have seen this earlier, I could have done some research. But since I didn't, I'm showing my ignorance. But uh, interesting question. We will find out from some of our readers here real quick, I'm, uh, or some of our viewers here real quick. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This episode is brought to you by Allstate. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. 
And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings vary and are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Quick, Wes, and then we'll get back to you. Jared in North Dakota. I recently had a 22250 Ackley Improved built. That's my baby. I've been shooting one of those for, gosh, more than 15, 20 years, I think. I have gotten all of my brass fire formed. There's some load data out and about for it, but I was wondering if you would care to share a few of your loads. I'm hoping to use 69 and 70 grain bullets. Thank you, Jared. Unfortunately, Jared, I'm not willing to share some of my load data because it's just too much. Well, it's hazardous to my health, shall we say. <laughs> the problem with sharing load data is then you open yourself to lawsuits for somebody who screws it up and blows up their gun or something. And all that load data can be found in the loading manuals, thoroughly tested. I could give you my load, but it doesn't mean it's going to be safe in your rifle or even effective. So you just need to dredge up that information from the loading manuals. I know not a lot of them have the 22 actually improved data. I believe some of the Noslers do. It could have been the Nosler 8 or the Nosler 9 manual or both had info on that. You could also look it up online. Uh, plenty of places to find things there. The safe way to do it, since there's not that much difference between the volume of the regular 22-250 Remington and the Ackley Improved version, you could start with your 22-250 Remington loads and then work your way up. Standard procedure. You're going to have a little more volume, of course. And with those heavier bullets, you're going to want the, the um, slower burning powders. So go for the data on, say, the 55 or 60 grain bullets in the 22-250 um, regular. And then... Take the, the slowest burning powder from that one to start working with your 22250 Ackley. But once you're done, you're going to love it because, yeah, I got I got mine with a 24-inch barrel shooting 75 grain bullets, 3,350 feet per second with several different powder combinations. And, and it'll shoot three-quarter of an inch all consistently. And every now and then I can get a half-inch group out of it. But I'm more than happy with three-quarter inch for the work I'm doing with it. And I'm hunted bobcats and coyotes and uh and some whitetails with it and had great luck so you're gonna enjoy that it's about comparable to the performance of a 220 swift maybe 50 feet per second behind it all right uh from australia alana what taxidermies do you have available to purchase thanks none done boy that was an easy one <laughs> No, um, actually, I, I do have some raw materials I've been trying to sell. Um, gosh, years ago, my wife and I shot some sable in Africa. And we don't need multiple sable mounts in our house. Well, they'd be fun to have, but it does cost money. So we had one done, and then we, we've got the capes from two more, all tanned out and ready to go. So if anyone's looking for a sable cape, We've even got the horns that we might let go on those guys. I think they're around 39 inches. Nice looking sable. Let me know if you need a sable. A sable's high. I was going to say, get a sable if you're able. <laughs> this is the cheapest way to get a sable, by the way. <laughs> All right, Paul from Texas. I inherited a Savage 99 in 300 Savage. What a classic. I envy you, Paul. And if I could find one of those in good condition, I just might pick it up because that is a nostalgic piece from way back. And people who have them absolutely love them. I have never hunted with a Savage 99 or a 300 Savage, but it'd be a fun one to play with. 
any rate, back to Paul. He says, my question is, will a 150-grain Acubon bullet work well? Hand-loaded correctly, of course, for deer. Absolutely no problem, Paul. Bingo, you're done. That was a no-brainer. You are going to be shooting about 50 to 100 feet per second more slowly than a 308 Winchester. And you know what everybody says about that dog of a cartridge 308 Winchester. It never fails. That's one of the most, if not the most popular deer hunting cartridges out there these days. Forget about the 3030 and the 30-06. The 308 is the king. And the 300 Savage was the inspiration for the 308. They are not very far apart. So you're going to have a blast shooting that rifle with a 150-grain Acubon. Bingo, you're in there. You're going to have a successful season. What else can I tell you? Hey, that looks like we've come to the end of these questions. There were some fun ones this time, guys. We want to thank everybody, whether it was Ray or Walter or Alex, West, Jared, or Paul or Alana. Boy, Alana, I'm waiting for that call on that sable, by the way. (laughs) Hey, thanks for all the uh, tips on bench rest shooting. As I mentioned, I'm going to go out and do a special video just with one rifle that's pretty accurate and see if I can shoot more accurately with a firmer grip, both hands on the gun, squared up better, tilted. I'll just do a variety of techniques and we'll see if one is consistently better than the other. And if so, maybe we can all start to adopt that when we're testing our rifles for accuracy. So until then, we will see you all down the road. Wish you all the best of luck. Hunting season's still rolling around here. I hope you are getting out and enjoying nature. Ron Spomer signing off on Honest and Shoot Straight. <laughs>